if you haven't already, go to patreon.com forward slash the Korea file and throw me a few won a month. For the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, you can help support this podcast in a big way. Thanks. Now, here's the interview. What was the reaction in Washington to Donald Trump's surprise announcement of a face-to-face meeting with Kim Jong-un? Exploring this month's upcoming inter-Korean summit, how does it compare to the Romu Hyun-Kim Jong-il meeting of 2007, and what are its chances of success? John Bolton adds a dangerous element to peacemaking efforts on the peninsula as he takes on the role of national security advisor in the Trump White House, and how come Seoul's still without an American ambassador? Assistant Director of the U.S.-Korea Institute at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and Managing Editor at 38North.org, Jenny Town joins me to talk about all this and more on Episode 73 of The Korea File. I'm Andre Goulet. Hey, Jenny. Hi, Andre. Great to be here. Frank Ahm of the United States Institute for Peace says that the consensus in Washington right now is that any engagement with North Korea is preferable to war and that while the risks that come with high-level Trump-Kim summit are high, so are the rewards. What was the reaction in Washington two weeks ago to Trump's surprise announcement? Uh, it really did catch us all a little off guard. Um, you know, certainly we, you know, we knew that North Korea had posed through the South Korean um, USDPRK talks. Um, or had agreed to to be willing to have U.S. DPRK talks um, and were willing to meet sort of the conditions that the U.S. had put forward um, in order to start a, a you know, a diplomatic process. Um, but certainly this is not what we had in mind. <laughs> yeah, I was completely shocked and maybe I shouldn't have been because like in a chaotic reality television presidency, what makes more sense than shooting for a really epic event, the one that's going to get the biggest ratings and the most attention. Were, were you personally surprised at the announcement? Yeah, I was surprised. You know, It's not surprising that Kim Jong-un had made the invitation. It is surprising that the U.S. president would accept, and especially to accept so quickly. Um, and the way that it all happened was very weird. The optics of the South Koreans briefing um, at the White House without even any um, White House officials around them um, was, was a strange sort of thing. But yeah, as you said, you know, this is a, a celebrity in the White House now. Um, this is sort of very reality TV, high ratings antics. Um, and so, you know, while we weren't expecting this, this is not what we had in mind when we were thinking about and sort of pushing for USDPRK direct engagement to happen. Um, it's, it doesn't mean it wrong. Um, but it is uncomfortable, and it's something that, you know, it's not really the way that the U.S. normally does diplomacy. Um, so there, there's a lot to be worked out now, and both uh, the risks are high, um, but so are the potential rewards when you get these two types of leaders together. So what role did President Moon Jae-in's government play in orchestrating the diplomatic moment? So certainly there were some back-channel talks that had happened um, at the end of last year, Uh, I think, you know, one thing that this pressure campaign has done was really um, intensify anxiety in the region that conflict was coming. And I think, you know, South Korea certainly has the most at stake um, in this process, uh, as it's likely to be one of the first targets if something were to go wrong. 
Um, so, you know, I think Moon Jae-in was very smart um, in and very kind of savvy in um, in responding to Kim Jong-un's overtures, diplomatic overtures in his New Year's speech, and really creating the environment to have direct talks on an issue that wasn't denuclearization. And so being able to, one, establish that relationship, two, sort of rebuild um, relations that have been deteriorating pretty significantly over the past 10 years with the conservative presidency in South Korea, um, and then, you know, even intensified more um, over the past year with all of North Korea's testing and with all the rhetoric coming out of Washington as well. Um, so, you know, being able to get to the table first and then, you know, try and expand that discussion into more sub substantive areas, I think we were all skeptical that he would be able to make that leap. Um, and he was. Uh, he did, and he did it, you know, pretty skillfully, um, and also being able to draw the U.S. into that process as well. So I think, you know, he was a key player um, in helping sort of engineer um, an environment more conducive to uh, a diplomatic process versus the, the path, the conflict we were on before. Victor Cha, writing with Katrine Fraser-Katz at Foreign Affairs magazine, states that Trump's newfound enthusiasm for diplomacy has temporarily lowered the temperature on the Korean Peninsula, but it also underlines a bigger question. Does the United States have a strategy for North Korea, or are these twists and turns merely the whims of a temperamental president? Jenny, are we seeing a primarily whim-driven North Korea policy from this administration? Um, you know, we would like to believe there's an underlying strategy there, um, despite some odd antics along the way. Um, you know, it's it's sometimes hard to tell, uh, but so far I think the messaging, you know, there has been sort of a consistent underlying tone. Um, and, you know, you could make the case <laughs> uh, that there's a logic to it. Um, however much you might disagree with uh, how it's been how it's played out, um, but it but it is a, it is a serious question that we all have as to you know one is there a strategy and two does Trump have the right people in place to actually implement that strategy in an effective way um, and with all of the twists and turns not only in you know how Trump is approaching this issue but in sort of the the people in place. Um, there, there's always a, a cause for a lot of uh, anxiety. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a very anxious time in Washington these days. Sean Katz observed that Trump's unpredictability has had some upsides. His self-proclaimed madman behavior may have played a role in bringing the North Koreans to the table. And the Trump administration's policy of applying maximum pressure has yielded some impressive results. An unprecedented summit between the U.S. and North Korean leaders could indeed bring lasting peace to Asia. But it could also go wrong. If negotiations fail, the administration might conclude that a military strike is the only way forward, greatly increasing the chance of war. Okay, this seems like a smart call for caution, but what do you think about what Sean Katz are suggesting here? I think it's, you know, on the right track. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons that you could argue as to why we're seeing the diplomacy now and whether it was U.S. policy-driven process, it was the pressure that brought North Korea to the table. Um, and it, it's an interesting phenomenon where you basically have every country rationalizing this 
in a way that credits themselves for the progress that's been made. <laughs> so you have the U.S. talking about it was the pressure, it was, you know, um, uh, Donald Trump, you know, the fire and fury and the antics that sort of gave the urgency of the situation and, you know, had sort of the military backing behind the sanctions um, that really, you know, created the created a, a situation where North Korea was kind of capitulating to U.S. pressure. You have the Chinese saying, well, the U.S. pressure only works because of China and because of China's, you know, deeper implementation of, you know, the, the sanctions and, and being able to um, pass harsher sanctions against North Korea. You have the South Koreans taking credit for the diplomatic side of the process. Um, and you have the North Koreans saying, well, no, it's because, um, you know, we have completed our state nuclear force and we're coming in at a position of confidence and strategic parity. So I think, you know, all of these um, factors are contributing to the process. And I don't think you can say one way or the other, which one was more, um, which one has had more um, of an influence. Um, but certainly the, the risks are high because, again, this isn't how America does diplomacy. Usually what you would want is an agreement in place. You would want specific outcomes already in hand, and then it's sort of a reward to be able to meet with the president of the United States. Um, not going in, you know, empty-handed at the beginning of a process and, you know, because there's some value to that meeting just in Trump showing up, you know, value to Kim Jong-un um, in terms of legitimacy, in terms of, um, again, sort of reinforcing this idea of strategic parity um, without having to have given up anything or without having had to have made substantive progress um, on a common agenda before getting to that meeting. Um, so, you know, it certainly does raise expectations because normally um, if you have a high-level summit with the United States president, uh, again, it's either to sort of uh, congrat is sort of a reward for the what has been accomplished. But since nothing's been accomplished, I think the expectations are high that he needs to walk away with something concrete. Um, and that puts a lot of pressure on the situation. And when you have people, for instance, now in place like um, Bolton and Pompeo, um, you know, that pressure uh, for some kind of concrete outcome on denuclearization coming from a two-hour meeting or, you know, a short meeting between two presidents is really, um, it, it's a really high-risk situation. And certainly both have the personality where they might be able to make big gestures but if they don't, it, it is an easy narrative to spin then in a, in a very dangerous direction. In an op-ed piece at ABC News, uh, Juhi Cho uh, kind of addresses this. She quotes Jinu Kim, who's an adjunct professor at the Graduate School of Political Studies at Gyeonggi University, uh, who says that precisely because Trump and Kim both have the reputation of being either bold or reckless, an unexpected surprise might materialize. Trump is a skillful negotiator. He's someone who would walk out to get a better deal. But I mean, is Trump actually a skillful negotiator or has he just made a career of playing one on television? And now that this reality show has gone global with nuclear stakes, I mean, are you optimistic about those talks? Um, I, I, there is potential. I would say that, um, you know, and because you also are dealing with two big egos, 
Um, there's also the potential for both sides to walk away and claim victory even if nothing happens, um, because neither is going to want to concede defeat to the other. Um, but, you know, certainly uh, Kim Jong-un, you know, the people around Kim Jong-un have been there for a very long time. And especially those that are advising him on the America issue are, are people who have been working on this issue and were part of the agreed framework negotiations. Um, so they're very, you know, much, they have very much been preparing him and giving him, you know, the, the intelligence that he needs, especially about Trump. Um, and, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, a lot of the world leaders have sort of figured out ways to play to Trump's ego and ways to make the situation kind of work in their favor. You know, Trump's very transactional. I'm sure Kim Jong-un is going to be very transactional also. Um, and so I think there there is a way that this could work where they could both come away again um, and claim victory where there may or may not actually be any results. Objectively, to me, it looks like President Moon's administration has been navigating everything that's been happening from the Olympics in Pyeongchang to this moment with little help from the United States. Is that an unreasonable observation? And how would you describe U.S.-South Korean relations right now? You know, certainly the Moon administration and President Moon himself has um, shown that, one, that he's willing to shoulder the criticism that comes with engaging North Korea and taking that first step and being the first mover in this process. Um, and I think, you know, he should be really be commended for that because I think that's really what this situation needed was someone um, willing to brush off the criticism um, and say, no, we're going to try this and see what happens. Uh, you know, and I think he has been sort of, again, very skillful in, in bringing the U.S. into the equation, knowing that even on the inter-Korean agenda, um, there are limits to what South Korea can ne negotiate with the North Koreans without U.S. support um, and without international community support. Um, you know, but, you know, is he in the driver's seat? I, I think, you know, I think Kim Jong-un with the recent meeting um, with Xi Jinping has shown that he's still in the driver's seat here um, and making sure that, you know, this isn't a U.S. controlled diplomatic process, but that, you know, Kim Jong-un, that North Korea has um, has options and has backup plans and, you know, has is trying to mend uh, relations with its more traditional um, friends and allies. Now, Victor Cha was in the news for another reason recently. He was nominated and then unnominated for the position of American ambassador to South Korea by the Trump administration. What happened there? You know, it's one of those situations where it leaves us all asking a lot of questions in, in terms of the way that it was handled or mishandled. Um, there, it's kind of a big mystery. There, there are so many theories now as to what was behind the decision um, to have you know, for this to have taken so long to resolve itself and the sudden um, canceling of his appointment, we're, we're really just not sure. The United States still doesn't have an ambassador in Seoul, right? So how unusual is that, particularly at this really tense, complicated moment? There's somebody named Mark Knapper in the role of charge d'affaires to South Korea, but that's like a largely ceremonial role. Um, how weird is this? Uh, it's very unfortunate. Um, it sends a very bad message um, to the South Koreans um, that, you know, there should be a, a, an ambassador to South Korea. South Korea is one of our key allies. This is 
points in history and points in um, current affairs where this is a, a very high priority strategic interest, um, the whole fate of the Korean Peninsula. Um, and it's really bad diplomacy and bad form for us not to have um, an ambassador there. And it also leaves a lot of room for misinterpretation and miscommunication between the U.S. and South Korea, especially as um, as antagonistic, for instance, as, as trade talks have been at, and how, you know, even just uh, North Korea policy in both countries, there have been times where it has been at odds and, and the sort of antagonistic approach of the Trump, of President Trump towards South Korea over the issue of um, military burden sharing and, and issues like this. Um, you would want to have an ambassador there to be able to kind of smooth over and convey messages and make sure that things aren't taken out of context and are kind of seen in the right um, in in the right light. Um, and and so it, it's been a it's been a very um, it's been a huge faux pas. To to me, this kind of tremendous lack of respect is shocking. Uh, there's no American ambassador, but there's still nearly 30,000 American troops in South Korea. About 12,000 of them are going to be joining 300,000 South Korean troops this month for Operation Full Eagle. How much do you think that these annual military exercises promote stability on the peninsula? And how much do they simply aggravate North Korea? Well, I mean, obviously, they, they serve both purposes. And one is really just to um, ensure military readiness. Um, and make sure that you know the that the combined forces are ready in case of you know any sort of contingency um, to act together because it is a complicated relationship, um, especially under wartime conditions. And so you know they do serve a very functional purpose, but um, you know they have been a sore spot, of course, in relations with North Korea, and especially over the past couple of years. Some of the drills that have been added, um, especially those dealing um, involving strategic assets and those involving decapitation, practicing decapitation of, of North Korean leadership, these are things that are above and beyond military readiness and above and beyond sort of a defensive posture. Um, and these are the parts that have really aggravated the North Koreans um, more in the past couple of years and really made uh, the military exercises more of a diplomatic issue um, between the two Koreas and between the U.S. and North Korea as well. If, if a war breaks out, who has ultimate control over the South Korean military? Um, so this is a, a tricky issue. There is wartime operational command right now. It's still with the U.S. and it is scheduled to be transferred over. Um, but, you know, certainly the South Korean army still has some jurisdiction over some parts of things and the combined forces have some jurisdiction over some parts of things. So it isn't sort of a clear cut structure. Interesting. Moving on. Most Korea observers knew this was coming and you talked about it before, but we have to address the mustache in the room. It felt like a surprise last week when the new American National Security Advisor was announced. This appointment had been telegraphed by the Trump reality show government for some time, but the official announcement somehow made it all the more terrifying. Jenny, who is John Bolton? (laughs) You know, John Bolton is an ultra-conservative, uh, you know, from the Bush camp. Uh, well, w- took high positions in the Bush camp, and I think that's when he really got to be known on the on American kind of political scene. He's ultra-hawkish. He's often called a warmonger. Um, he was a former assist- uh, Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. Um, 
but you know he is he was you know the driving force um under the uh bush administration behind he was the driving force behind the collapse of the agreed framework um he was also very much um a proponent for the Iraq war um and he has you know in recent years really and especially in recent months really advocated the need for preventive war preventive strikes on both yeah, Syria was, was, and Iran I was I was going to refer to him as a warmonger actually one of the chief warmongers of the George W Bush era former UN ambassador he famously said that the UN building in New York has 38 stories if he lost 10 stories today it wouldn't make a bit of difference whatever that means uh, and then this February like you're talking about he wrote that it's perfectly legitimate for the United States to respond to the current necessity posed by North Korea's nuclear weapons by striking first. He doesn't, however, mention how to square this perfect legitimacy with the projected millions of Koreans who die in the first 72 hours of a conflict on the peninsula. So, like, how dangerous is Bolton? Uh, he's very dangerous, especially if he has the confidence in the ear of the president. Um, they always say that you know, military, actual military officers are always very reluctant to talk about war and military options because they know the consequences of it, whereas policy people tend to throw it around a little bit more freely. And I think this is one of those cases um, where it's sort of, it sounds good, it makes them sound tough, um, but it's, you know, when you're dealing with an issue like proliferation, you know, if you look at the historical cases of how the U.S. has addressed proliferation in other countries, um, it has always been done in a negotiation, a negotiated um, manner, except for one case, which was, of course, the Iraq War, and we all know how that ended up. Um, this is um, a person who, again, if he has the confidence of Trump, if he, if he's kind of telling him in his ear, if he's cherry picking intel as he's sort of known to do in order to um, make sure that the intel matches his political views and sort of dismisses the intel that doesn't. This makes him a very powerful and very dangerous voice in the White House um, that could be driving decisions and driving us into another war. And another major shift in a constantly agitated American government in 2018 is that Rex Tillerson's out and former CIA director Mike Pompeo is in as Secretary of State. According to CNN, Trump's personally instructed Pompeo to take charge of preparations for the upcoming summit with Kim Jong-un. Uh, what do you know about Mike Pompeo? Well, you know, Mike Pompeo, before the Bolton appointment, seems like it, it could actually have an upside. And one is that, you know, it was sort of clear that that Tillerson and Trump were not on good terms um, and, and certainly weren't speaking from the same page and that, you know, that Tillerson didn't have Trump's confidence. Pompeo does. Um, he's been in charge of the CIA uh, since 2016 and has made, you know, Korea um, a higher priority, including, you know, the establishment of a Korea mission center. He is hawkish, though, of course. Um, but I, I don't think he's necessarily as reckless, for instance, um, or as eager um, for war as what, you know, Bolton is. Um, and I think, you know, there because he has more of Trump's confidence, I think, you know, it could have brought to the North Korea process um, also higher confidence that if they're working with Pompeo, that it actually is going to be um, in line with the president's thinking rather than what we've had over the past year and a half of, 
you know, Tillerson saying one thing and Trump tweeting another. Um, that said, now that, you know, they have Bolton in place also, I, I do have to question whether or not Pompeo will actually be um, confirmed as Secretary of State, because I think a lot of people are now looking at this appointment much more closely um, as to what the implications of having two hawkish and ultra hawkish um, cabinet members uh, in key positions so close to the president and what uh, what direction that might lead the country. So, you know, there, I don't think this is necessarily a done deal. When I'm listening to Jeremy Scahill's Intercepted podcast and getting really terrified, really scared about all of the uh, moves happening in the American government and how they relate to Korea, the one thing that doesn't come up very often is that the chaos factor that comes from having Trump himself also plays out in the way that sort of egos clash within the White House. And... <laughs> It, it, it's really difficult to predict how these different personalities will actually work together or fail to work together when they're actually in the same room. And finally, I want to bring up a couple of diplomatic surprises that happened this week. The first is a kind of mystery on the Beijing Express. Who was on that China-bound train, Jenny? We, we know we know the answer now. Who was it? Um, yeah. Kim Jong-un and company, including Kim Jong-un's wife, Rizal Dil, which was a really interesting development also. Um, and a lot of his key advisors in that process. Right. And apparently it was mostly people having to do with the nuclear issue and not economic issues, uh, signaling to China that that is North Korea being serious about actually engaging with the nuclear issue. Uh, This was Kim's first visit to China since taking power after his father's death in 2011. Writing in Al Jazeera, Sewon Koo, one of the founders of the Very Good Korea Expose website, says that the visit confirmed what many observers here have believed all along. North Korea's serious about dialogue and wants to shed its long-standing image as a pariah state. It's ready to join the international community once again. Bolton and Pompeo are unlikely to see Kim's Beijing trip in the same light. What are your thoughts on the Kim Xi meeting? Um, I think, again, you know, part of why Kim Jong-un was doing what he's doing was, again, because they do feel confident in sort of their strategic position and their strategic parity. Um, again, he's not coming in now as the, the green leader, but he's coming in as a you know, seasoned leader who has now built a, a credible nuclear deterrence. And again, I do agree with the idea that part of this is him wanting to change this perception of him being a pariah state, of North Korea being a pariah state, and wanting to now focus on how do we get to the economic side of the Byung-Jin equation. And China, of course, is very key in that knowing that, you know, he has to have um, uh, some flexibility on the nuclear issue in order to uh, reestablish that relationship and and those ties and repair those ties. I think everyone is skeptical as to what, as to whether or not we all have the same understanding of what denuclearization means. Um, I do think it's also in the U.S., um, you know, obviously, the timing factor also matters. And I think the U.S. and China, when it comes to denuclearization, uh, do have different thoughts on, and I'm sure the North Koreans also have different thoughts on sort of what the end state of that denuclearization process actually is and what the timing of that process is. Um, And I think one thing you hear in the U.S. a lot is that, you know, they want this process to be fast 
they want it to be complete. Um, and, you know, when you talk to, you know, others, and in, especially in China and North Korea, even in South Korea, you see this process as a much longer term process. Um, and I think another point that is, is often missed when people talk about North Korea's denuclearization is that it's still always conditional on, you know, the proper security environment and the removal of U.S. hostile policies. So, you know, it's not that he's coming to the table and putting his nukes on the table saying, here, go ahead and take them. Now what can I get? Um, but, you know, it's, it's, there's going to be a price um, and there's going to have to be uh, also, you know, all sides kind of giving to this process in order to get um, the right political conditions uh, for Kim Jong-un to make substantive moves and advancements down that line. So I think we all need to have very realistic expectations and we need a lot of clarity on what um, what denuclearization actually means to all the different parties and, and figure out where we can find agreement. Today, April 4th, 2018, marks the 70th anniversary of the Jeju uprising in which 40,000 islanders were killed in a year-long mass murder spree by Japanese-trained South Korean police and anti-communist death squads supported by the American government. Korea has seen so much tragedy in the last hundred years, and a lot of it's been essentially as a supporting player in its own history, manipulated by greater powers. But all of this diplomatic progress since the Pyeongchang Olympics, even you know, in the face of uh, an aggressive U.S., has introduced something that hasn't existed on the peninsula for a decade, which is hope. President Moon and Kim Jong-un are going to be summiting on April 27th in Pyongyang, the first top-level inter-Korean meeting since President Roh Moo-hyun met with Kim's dad a decade ago. They're going to talk about denuclearization, establishment of peace, and improving inter-Korean relations. But it's going to be a much different summit than in 2007. So, what do you anticipate coming out of the Moon Kim Summit? As you said, this is a very different time. And, and uh, you know, of course, South Korea understands, um, I think both Koreas understand in their long history um, that Korean Peninsula has often been the site of a proxy war between big powers. Um, and I think, you know, South Korea right now, again, has the most at stake in this process, because if that proxy war begins again, um, the the casualties and the destruction that can happen on the Korean Peninsula is massive. Um, so, you know, I think the way they're approaching this summit is really, again, to sort of lay the groundwork for the other summit, the other summit being the USDPRK summit of what can they do in that process um, to find some clarity, to find some common understanding on the issues that will matter most um, within the alliance um, to make sure that we can keep this diplomatic process going um, and avoid conflict in the region. And I think, you know, that's really the biggest, highest priority for those in the region is to prevent conflict in the region. Um, and knowing that North Korea is sort of at the heart of that, North Korea and the United States are at the heart of that equation. So I think everyone's trying to be supportive. Um, and the South Koreans, I think, are using this process um, to help sort of do the legwork that normally would be done. Um, again, in a, in a normal U.S. diplomatic process, you would have the working level meetings, you would have some tangible outcomes, you would have some common understanding before you get to the high level summit. Uh, and I think, you know, South Korea has sort of been um, approaching this as somewhat a proxy in that process. 
um, to do some of that legwork um, in order to make sure that we can keep this diplomatic uh, environment alive. Would it be a mistake to feel a cautious sense of optimism right now? Uh, a cautious optimism, I think, is the right approach, is, is sort of the right feeling. Um, I, I think there's, again, there was more hope before Bolton. <laughs> I was definitely much more hopeful uh, about this process uh, until the appointment of Bolton, even with the appointment of Pompeo. Um, but there, there's, yeah, I think there's certainly a lot of progress that has been made in shifting the narrative um, away from conflict um, towards the what can we do now and why we need to do it. Um, and I think, you know, if the Kim Moon Summit goes well and they can come away with a common understanding and come away with the a very tangible commitment to a mutually agreed upon kind of set of principles, I think it will help um, sort of broker in better USDPRK relations and help try and set the USDPRK summit, the Trump-Kim summit up for some level of success and hopefully enough to keep the diplomacy going. Jenny Town is the assistant director of the U.S. Korea Institute at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the managing editor at 38north.org. Jenny, thanks for speaking with The Korea File. Thanks for having me. It was, it was fun. That's The Korea File for this month. Throw this podcast if you want at patreon.com forward slash The Korea File. I really appreciate every contribution. Thanks. You can follow Jenny on Twitter at Jenny Town. I'm on there too at Andre Margoulet. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher and as a feature contributor at Korea FM and Korea Bridge. Find them and like them on Facebook. You'll find The Korea File there too with links and current news and commentary about the peninsula and check back where we found this podcast in early May for a new episode. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening.